When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it's time to talk about food and the nation's new food issue, the future of food setting the table for the next generation. For that, we turn to one of the key contributors to that issue, Raj Patel. He's an award-winning writer and activist, and he's also a research professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin, and a senior research associate in humanities at Rhodes University in South Africa. His new book has just been published, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Raj Patel, welcome to the program. Well, thanks very much, John, for having me. Before we talk about the nation food issue, let's talk about your new book. You open it by saying that our long era of climactic good fortune has come to an end. Please explain. Well, the uh, the past few hundred years uh, in particular have been uh, an era of relative uh, climatic stability. And marry that with uh, an economic system that was is, is premised on relying on this uh, fairly stable weather. And you've got the, the story of modern capitalism. But th- that fluke is over. Um, we've done uh, a, a great deal of damage to our natural world. And... The, the consequence of this uh, is that we're moving uh, away from uh, this era of stability into something far, far more different. And now a lot of people call this uh, you know, the, the, the time that we're moving into the Anthropocene, you know, the, the, the time where you'll be able to tell that humans were on Earth because of radioactivity or because of uh, plastic in the sea. You know, by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the sea than fish. Uh, and the, you know, these markers uh, are, are not so much markers of humans as markers of capitalism. I mean, there's nothing about being human that, that causes us to, to, to engage in atmospheric nuclear testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much a, a, a product of modern capitalism. And so that's why uh, Jason Moore and I, my co-author, uh, argued that it should be called the Capitalocene. Well, the seven cheap things in the title of your book, which you say made the modern capitalist world, are nature, money, work, care, food, energy and lives. I think we should start with cheap. Is cheap a good thing? Uh, Not really. I mean, cheap is the strategy that capitalism has uh, to be able to externalize and and abuse and exploit. Uh, And so with each of those seven things, you you can, I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around all seven at the same time, but the idea, the the example that that, uh, Jason and I kind of pick on is another sign of the Anthropocene, which, or the Capitalocene, which is chicken. Uh, the, The fact that we're able to have so much cheap chicken is because of these seven cheap things and it's not a bargain it's dependent on exploiting nature and you know we, we've rendered 50 percent of chicken species extinct uh, while breeding uh, regular chicken species uh, you know, to, to levels where their breasts are so big they can't walk uh when you think about nature we think about you know, the fact that these nugget you know, these chickens don't turn themselves into nuggets by themselves they require the exploitation of workers 
when those workers' bodies are broken, it requires cheap care, but uh, care is increasingly becoming unaffordable around the world. Nonetheless, these workers and the birds require cheap food, and that means, uh, you know, that's why you know, the, the chicken McNugget features in a sort of cycle of, of low-quality, low-nutrition food to help keep workers fed until, through the end of the day. You need cheap energy to be able to make all this uh, you know, transportable and affordable. And you need cheap money to be able to afford all this. Uh, you know, the, the, the fact that you need small business administration loans to make Kentucky Fried Chicken outlets affordable uh, for, for the franchisees is another sign that, um, you know, that, that there are costs that are externalized. And nonetheless, we need cheap lives. We, we, there, there are around the world today 40 million people in conditions of modern day slavery. But what we're arguing is that all of these things are running out, um, and that's why we're, 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 we argue that, that we're moving, you know, this chicken nugget is sort of the chicken nugget at the end of the world. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're tilting to a, a world without capitalism. Uh, I want to stick with the chicken example for a minute. Isn't uh, cheap chicken a good thing? Um, for my grandparents, eating chicken was a rare treat that you would do, you know, on Sunday for a, a feast. Uh, today... You know, we can have chicken every day and, you know, people shouldn't be hungry. People shouldn't have to struggle to get enough to eat. Uh, You don't seem to think that cheap chicken is a good thing. Well, I I fully agree, John, that that people shouldn't be hungry. And the trouble is that if you look at um, the people in the United States who are uh, among the hungriest, these are workers in the food industry. The food industry depends on, on low wages. Uh, and so if we care about people not going hungry, we need to raise workers' wages. But the only reason that chicken is cheap is because workers are exploited. So you have to choose one or the other. And I choose workers. I choose everyone being able to eat well. Um, and I, I, I don't choose you know, disposably cheap chicken. And chickens don't contribute much to global warming, do they, especially compared to, to, to beef cattle? No, no, you're right that compared to other things, you know, the, the, the main sort of carbon footprint of chicken is usually in the propane that's required to heat up these huge chicken coops. Um, but it's not negligible. And, of course, in order for the, uh, the production line to work and for these uh, birds to be transported to where it is that they're needed, you do need a fossil fuel economy. And the trouble with that is that uh, we're seeing the capital expenditure per ba- barrel of oil going up. In fact, 45 percent of all American uh, oil exploration last year was only possible because it was given it was underwritten by federal subsidy. So, you know, we do need oil to be able to make th- this food system work. And even though chicken is comparatively less dependent on it than cattle, uh, that's not saying you know, it's, it's still uh, dependent on, on a fossil fuel economy. So you call your book A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Maybe we should examine more closely the, the word things. I, maybe we need to know more about what things, what things are. Well, that's a subtle question, John, and I appreciate it deeply. Because, well, because uh, you know, we we often think of nature as a thing, uh, as something outside us that we can carve up and buy and sell, and occasionally visit when we when we go to a state park. Um, but that's a, a sign of what capitalism does to our understanding of how we fit into the web of life. Many human civilizations don't think of nature as a thing, but uh, understand our relationship in a web of life making very differently. So, for example, the Haida or coastal Salish communities uh, have a salmon festival in which 
humans and salmon celebrate a treaty together. Uh, and so th th this is a different way of thinking about food, not as a thing that you can take, but as a people with whom you treat as a sovereign state that, that, that's in some way equal to you. Uh, and th one of capitalism's sort of tricks is to make us feel like gods, that, that we are in charge of nature and that nature is a thing that we can cast our eye over and hopefully see money. Uh, but that's not the way that many civilizations have approached nature at all. So capitalism makes things cheap. Of course, that's its main virtue, according to its defenders. Everybody in the world can have a cell phone. Everybody in the world can watch TV uh, who wants to. Uh, a few people have figured out how to make a lot of money by producing cheap things, but isn't that for the greater good? Isn't it inevitable that a few people will figure out how to do this? Isn't that human nature? This is what the capitalists tell us. The, the trouble is that you, it's hard to square that kind of, well, you know, in the end, everyone's better off under capitalism when we're, uh, for the first time in decades, seeing an increase in the rate and prevalence of food insecurity. When we live in a time when there are 40 million, as I say, 40 million people in conditions of modern day slavery. And when we, you know, when we have this sort of vast and yawning inequality and the fact that we are in the middle of the sixth extinction, that we are destroying the very basis on which our uh, you know, our, our uh, survival as a species depends. Uh, and so to say, well, yeah, no, ignore all that. Um, still, people are better off is, is uh, I think, uh, in a very deep way to miss the forest of the trees. Now let's talk about the nation food issue for a minute. It's called the future of food. And the question that you take up there is a big one. How do we get to a more equitable and sustainable food system? In your piece, you say that in order to get there, we need to recognize where inequity and unsustainability come from. Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, actually, John, it, it, it sort of follows from, um, from the conversation we were just having. I mean, yeah. if the food system is really based on colonialism and exploitation, then we should be able to see that in some place. And a good place to see it is on a banana. You may see a banana that says fair trade or shade grown or organic. And that banana will likely have come from the Caribbean. If, if you're living here in the United States, uh, you know, the, the largest majority, you know, slice of our, our banana intake comes from, from, uh, from Guatemala. And yet Guatemala is the very country that a U.S. corporation, the United Fruit Company, called its buddies in, in the CIA to be able to arrange a coup in order to prevent peasants there from, from having uh, some sort of redistribution of land uh, and uh, just a, a democratic land reform. I, I often, um, in my food activist role, sort of get asked by people, well, you know, if you don't buy fair trade, if you don't buy bananas, what will happen to these poor countries? What will they, what will they depend on? How will they export? How will they ever pay down their debt? And what I'm suggesting is that actually we owe them. We owe uh, these countries from here, us in the United States, we owe a, a huge debt to the global south for the, you know, the way that our, you know, that basically we've turned the Caribbean into our fruit basket. And now we expect it to remain that way in perpetuity so we can have cheap bananas. And fair trade may allow some farmers to hang on with their, by their fingernails a little longer in the banana market. But to be fair, the, these farmers never asked to be banana farmers. Uh, that was imposed on them by us. And we have to reckon with that, with that legacy. Last question, what then are the, the priorities for movements of social justice from your perspective? It depends where you are, and that's a great uh, that's a great question to end on, John. Because you know, if this feels overwhelming, I mean, it's it's meant to be big, right? These are systemic changes that we're yeah. talking about. 
But there are deep connections between the different frontiers of capitalist exploitation and resistance. Uh, so whether it's in the labor movement or in the climate justice movement or the environmental justice movement or the food justice movement, there are ways that people in these movements are finding one another and building strong uh, and robust alliances. And so for, for people listening now who want to do that, find the food or environmental or climate justice movement or racial, uh, racial justice movement or gender justice movement that most appeals to you and make sure that their vision understands how capitalism matters. And soon those dots get to be connected through, through your activism and through social movement. And that's how it is that we make a change. Raj Patel connects the dots. He wrote about a more equitable and sustainable food system for the nation's special issue on the future of food. His new book is A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Raj, thanks so much for talking with us today. John, it's a deep pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.